Welcome to the 261st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm glad to talk with Mira Choi and Hannah Tesler about their new research on the anxiety of being Asian American in the COVID-19 pandemic. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been getting a number of great suggestions lately, and I encourage you to please keep sending those. Thank you. As of today, April 19th, 2021, there are 3,021,793 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has reached 567,217. In Cambodia, it's reported that 43 have died from COVID-19. And in Thailand, they're reporting 101 deaths from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now with a quite extraordinary obituary, which I first saw on the Faces of COVID site. You can check out Faces of COVID on Twitter if you're not familiar with it. Alex Goldstein, who created Faces of COVID, has been a guest on COVID Calls twice. Daily, he publishes multiple obituaries of those who died from COVID-19. This is the life story of Leah Danielle Jones, September 22nd, 1987, born and died March 12th, 2021. And I'll be reading this as it was published, which is in the first person. She wrote this herself. I, Leah Danielle Jones, was born on September 22nd, 1987 in Charlotte, North Carolina to Eric Arnell Jones and Joyce Boast Jones. Waiting patiently at home was my elder and only brother, Jonathan Philemon Jones. I departed from my temporary home on March 12, 2021, surrounded by my family. I'm waiting for Christ's return. I was 33 and a half years young. I died due to complications from COVID-19, which none of us knew existed one and a half years ago, 2019. I, along with others like me, are termed long haulers. The term long hauler means a person who has been infected by the virus and has recovered. No longer infectious, however, the damage had been done to vital organs. A YouTube video on this site, and I will make that link available to Leah Danielle Jones's obituary, which I am now reading, and on the site she makes a YouTube video available. A YouTube video will inform you more explicitly the extent of this virus. Unfortunately, those like me may or may not survive the aftermath. I, hopefully, am in the minority of those numbers. 
I would love for as many as can watch the video and please pray and support the long haulers. What can I say but to God be the glory, great things he has done, even in my short life. He gave me qualities of compassion, generosity, boundless energy, knowledge, and determination, a.k.a. stubbornness, which my mom would say of me. If you met me, you would have never forgotten that Jones girl. I loved to cook, dad's gift to me. I had many specialties. Bread making was just one. In my own way, I championed many causes, namely, A, people who were considered the undesirables, outcasts of society, B, support to families, especially the single home parent, C, children, those who were affected by the school closings due to the pandemic, D, victims of the hurricanes, wildfires, national and international. My mom would accuse me of disaster hunting, seeing all the good others were doing and saving lives. Mercy Ships St. Jude Children's Research, Feed the Children campaigns. It didn't take much. Oh, by the way, let's not forget the poor abused animals. The gift that God entrusted with me was amazing. Nursing baby kittens, helping injured ones. It amazed even me, and I always knew it was a special gift from him. The most rewarding part of my life was the day I was able to take care of my mom. She had been badly injured in a lawnmower accident. Being unable to properly care for herself for months, love stepped in. Of course, she protested. Stubborn woman. As my health declined and my illness progressed, I became physically hampered, somewhat, from doing my regular daily routine. Therefore, I leaned more heavily on the help of my mom. She, in the most part, was more than willing. The few times she was not so willing, I, Leah Danielle Jones, prevailed. I pressed on with the affairs of home and business. Yes, Dad dragged me in on this E.A. Jones plumbing adventure. Life and its pull were getting the best of me by the end of last year. However, God and my family powered the best in and for me till the end. If in this life we met, I hoped our encounter left you with a lasting snapshot of a determined, sometimes complex, genuine friend, one you could talk to. If, however, we did not meet, it was my loss, and I'm sorry. I believed that every person, experience, good or bad, added to my life a measure of maturity. Lastly, in my own defense of my very interesting family, to you, Dad Eric Arnell Jones, you were my daddy. With all your strengths and weaknesses, I would not have traded you for the world or for another earthly father. I love you. To you, Mom Joyce Ann Boast Jones, we would refer to you as Brick because of your non-compromising positions, but only when you did not agree with us. But as for your love for us, never wavered. But as for your love for us, it never wavered like a rock. Brick, I loved you. To my dearest brother, Jonathan Philemon Jones, we had our battles, as siblings do, but when it matters, we, love, showed up. When you needed me, I came through, and when I needed you, Jonathan, you showed up big time. At the end, I needed you, and you said yes. Thank you, and I loved you. Don't you ever, ever forget that. To the rest of my family, uncles, aunts, cousins, and friends, I hope my life has left you with an endearing and lasting picture frame of someone who lived life her way. I loved you. May the grace of God and his marvelous love and in his power sustain you forever. With all my love, Leah. The obituary written in the first person by Leah Danielle Jones, who died last month of COVID-19.
Okay, I'm going to turn to our conversation for today and really pleased to introduce my guest to you. Mira Choi is a PhD student at Yale University. She received her bachelor's and master's degrees in sociology from Ewa Women's University in Seoul, South Korea. Her research focuses on gender, family, and urban sociology. My second guest is Hannah Tesler, also a PhD student at Yale University. She graduated from Hamilton College with a bachelor's degree in sociology, and her research focuses on race and ethnicity, gender, education, and social interactions. Mira and Hannah, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So let me start the way I usually do, find out where you're, and since you're there, I can see that you're there together, so um, you can answer however you'd like, but let us know where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there today. Um, we're calling from um, New Haven, Connecticut. We're neighbors. We live like four houses away. So we joined the call together. Um, one year ago in New Haven, it was so hard to find masks and everyone um, was not really aware of the COVID situation. But right now people are um, pretty aware and um, pretty cautious. Um, keeping social distances, um, wearing masks outside, working from home. Um, and as of today, I saw in the news that 46% of um, residents of New Haven County are vaccinated with their first dose of COVID um, vaccine. Yeah, so, yeah. Tell Both of us are grad students, so we've mostly just been staying at home for the past year and a couple of months. Um, and working from home. I'm really glad that you decided to do this together. It's like, it's very telling. Um, I mean, in the same location, um, and throughout the pandemic, were you, were you able to make a sort of a, a grad student pod there where you could actually be together and, and talk and share research or did you have to spend most of the time separated throughout that uh, early phase of the pandemic? Um, so we don't have a perfect pod, unfortunately, you know, because people have roommates and sure. friends and all of that. But I mean, uh, both of us have been limiting our contact to only a few um, households. And so it has been nice um, to be able to spend time with other grad students as friends and also as research collaborators. Mira and I have been <laughs> doing a lot of work um, during the pandemic on COVID related new research. And so we're always like working together and it's really nice to be able to do that um, with somebody else rather than just staying home alone because I know for a lot of people, this is a very isolating time. So yeah, we're grateful to have that. You've been incredibly productive through the time and we're gonna talk about your research in some detail. Before we do, maybe you could say a little bit more about some of the other, I know you both said you'd lived in other places as well, you have a bit of a global view. Maybe you could report for us what the experience of COVID has been from other places that you've been in contact with or that you've, probably you haven't been in those places, but you have maybe family or friends there. Yeah, sure. So I, I've i been in New Haven for the entire pandemic and I guess for my whole um, grad school career so far. Um, but before coming to grad school, um, I was actually living abroad in Shanghai um, and I have friends who are still living and working in Shanghai um, and other friends who have since 
repatriated back to the US um, during this time. So just thinking about like my personal experience when I was living abroad and in Shanghai and traveling around Asia. Um, now it's kind of crazy to think about because it feels so distant, um, but also that there are like some parts of living abroad that, and particularly, particularly living in China, um, where I can see how the um, COVID kind of controlling the pandemic has played out really differently just because of um, the way that surveillance and different technologies worked sure. um, living in China versus living here. Um, and, you know, in Shanghai, there's like security cameras everywhere and um, my phone number, my WeChat, my bank account, everything is all linked together to my passport. And so it's really clear um, that there are just different systems in place um, compared to the U.S. That <laughs> then when it comes to the pandemic and I know um, there were really strict rules on people leaving the country and coming back into the country. Um, and a number of my friends had mm. like all their belongings stuck or their pets stuck in one place oh, or really? in another place. Yeah. So that's been kind of dramatic um, experience of other foreigners living in China at the time. And mm. yeah, but I've been in New Haven this whole time. Yeah, um, I lived in Suzhou, China when I was young. Um, during and that was when they had um, SARS epidemic and I was only 10 years old but I remember um, taking temperatures in front of my school before I go um, to school I had to um, wash my hands and stuff so that was one experience of epidemic in China but most of my um, childhood and adulthood before coming to New Haven I lived in Seoul um, even though during pandemic, I was in New Haven most of the time. Um, I know that a lot of my friends in Seoul, they take this COVID um, very seriously. And I don't think there's much variation in terms of viewing COVID as a public health crisis. Um, so everyone is quite serious about um, these kinds of um, dealing with pandemic. And I think wearing masks have already been uh, some sort of common routine in South Korea due to air pollution and other mm -hmm. like Ebola epidemic and stuff. So it was really not that hard to imagine wearing um, masks, but it seemed quite distant when I talk with my friends in Korea or if my families in Korea and see how it's going on here in the US, I could really see the difference of how people treat um, the pandemic and how people kind of view this as a public health crisis or a, an issue of freedom. So that was kind of interesting to see, yeah. Well, I've just moved to South Korea myself only two months ago. And so, you oh, know, wow. what you're talking about, um, you know, that viewpoint from the United States and, and South Korea, it is, it is quite different. And to the point that you were making, Hannah, about the sort of technologies um, you know, that's that's similar here in, in South Korea, the degree to which um, people's banking um, and other kinds of activities are handled through a couple of main media providers, social media providers on their phone, which is a bit different from the United States, um, has also enabled, though, a system of rapid communication. Just to take one example, I get a text message every time there's a case reported where I am at Daishan, which couldn't be any different many more different from the experience of being in the United States. So um, just throwing in my own perspective there, that those 
comparisons are really stark and interesting, I think. Your, the bulk of your research at this time has been focusing um, in North America, and maybe we can turn to that. You started a study last year in which you were um, trying to assess, understand, and assess the social implications of the COVID-19 pandemic and people's social relationships. Um, and that's gone in some interesting directions, particularly with a focus on anti-Asian right, racism, bias, and, and violence against Asians in America. Let me just ask you sort of a general question to tell us about the, the nature of the project, um, some of the methods that you've, you've used. Sketch it out for us. Sure. Um, so we started this project pretty early on in the pandemic um, through a series of Zoom calls. And I mean, Mira and I were seeing each other in person. Um, so it was clear early on um, that some people made predictions of, oh, you know, this will be over in a few weeks. Um, but for Mira and I, and also for our advisor um, and the project PI, um, we really thought, you know, this is going to be around for a while. <laughs> um, and I know Grace, like at the time, even in March, she'd said, oh, you know, I'm canceling all of my travel for the rest of 2020. And then everyone in the department said, oh, you know, that's crazy. <laughs> um, but as we have found out that um, obviously we're still in a pandemic. So we were just, you know, having a series of different like Zoom calls, conversations and um, thought about, oh, you know, that we really want to collect data about this, that this is something that could fundamentally transform the way that we're interacting with each other and um, a lot of like the social norms around interaction. So we actually collected our first wave of data um, last fall and we're planning for a second wave of data collection, hopefully this fall. Um, it's been a bit tricky because um, we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. So we're, originally we had planned to collect data, I think it was like summer 2020, and then six months later um, in the winter 2020. But uh, with the way that things um, went <laughs> along um, and given the pandemic and the trajectory, um, we're happy with you know the timing of what we have been able to do. Um, and yeah, so we've put together an online survey and I mean, Mira, you can talk a little bit more about the methods maybe. Yeah, so our survey is called Longitudinal Study of um, Dynamics of Social Life During COVID-19. Um, we um, um, have administered the uh, survey through a survey company called YouGov and we collected a nationally representative um, sample of 3,000 116 um, U.S. adults, including um, 592 Asian adults, uh, which is an oversample of Asians. Um, yeah, we collected a bunch of data, um, basic data about people's um, sociodemographic status, but also we asked questions about people's attitudes towards um, social relationships like dating or friendships, um, whether they, yeah, like during COVID, whether they want to have more children or pets, like their attitudes towards these kinds of new commit level of commitment in their relationships. Um, but we also ask questions about anti-Asian or anti-racism incidents and um, involvement in social justice movements during COVID-19 to see how um, people are actually reacting to COVID and um, how COVID is impacting people's social relationships, well-being, and um, their attitudes towards other race and ethnicity. I have a lot of questions. I just, just to, to sort of, at a first level, just to, maybe you could break down for us some of the kind of theoretical background 
to this. The, the idea is to explore um, social relationships under stress. Uh, and, and so the pandemic provides a, a format to, to examine those, or is, is that the framework that you're working with? Tell us a little bit more about the kind of um, theoretical implications of these kinds of questions. Yeah, so we're thinking both um, social relationships under stress, but also, you know, I mean, cross our fingers, hopefully at some point, COVID pandemic as it is, will be over, maybe not entirely, but, you know, that people will go back to quote unquote normal life. Um, and so we're really looking at whether or not there are sustained changes that come after the mm. pandemic. Okay. Um, and that's why we wanted to do like longitudinal data collection to kind of see are these changes temporary and every single day in the news headlines we see, you know, COVID is making people lonely, COVID is, you know, causing this and that. Um, and we wanted to kind of look at some of the more enduring potential consequences of COVID. And um, obviously there's a lot of um, really great and quick research coming out about um, the COVID-19 virus itself and the spread and um, the health implications of COVID. Um, but we were seeing less about the kind of social dimension of what's happening during COVID. Um, so that's one area that our research was hoping to um, address is kind of looking at, you know, this pandemic obviously is um, like has a lot of cases and is impacting a lot of people in terms of getting sick and um, passing away, but at the same time, the especially social distancing guidelines and stay-at-home orders are impacting almost everyone worldwide. So we wanted to look at how is COVID actually making an impact on everyone um, mm -hmm. and going beyond just the people who are getting sick, which obviously also is important to study and terrible. It's really interesting. I mean, just to sort of slow that down, because I, I really, this kind of disaster research more broadly, um, there's some really complicated things going on in what you're trying to assess here. One is to get people's sense of how their day-to-day -day life and their social relationships that you're focusing on are changing, which you're building the study literally as those changes are unfolding day by day. So it's not like things changed and I can give you a list, but it's dynamic. Mm -hmm. And then the other part, which I think is really... It, it, super important that you pointed to is what kinds of changes then become a sort of a, I mean, the phrase new normal is overused. I'm not quite sure what else to say, but become um, a new life pathway, a new set of relationships, changes that become more permanent or more long lasting. Both of those are really difficult things to, to undertake. Um, so congratulations on, on doing that and getting the survey out. I wonder what those early team meetings must have been like when you were brainstorming the kinds of areas um, that you were expecting to see changes. Mira, can you speak to some of that? Yeah, so basically all of us were really interested in how social distancing guidelines and um, the new normative um, expectations around um, keeping the distance and having a small social gathering or limiting your social gathering um, how that would change people's perceptions of dating or friendships or um, loneliness. Um, and many of the like media attention focuses on how people are really lonely and how people um, are lonely because of the social distancing. Um, but we it's also found that, 
we also kind of expected that, um, especially in the context of South Korea, when we were having this um, Zoom meetings with some of our colleagues in South Korea, um, that some people are kind of actually relieved to be away from these kinds of um, all the social gatherings and um, kind of mandatory um, events that you have to attend to. So people are actually happy to be at home, um, staying, um, spending more time with their family. So there were these kinds of like mixed um, ideas around how social distancing is changing people's uh, perceptions of social relationships. So that was like a big part of um, our survey, kind of looking at whether the COVID is actually only bringing negative consequences or are there like some positive um, consequences of COVID um, that people are so like tied together with a lot of um, social commitments these days. Yeah, so that was like one big part of our survey. Yeah, I think one thing to mention also um, is that we actually worked also part of our team is in South Korea. Um, and so we first did a data collection effort last summer, um, adding questions to a nationally representative survey in South Korea. So we were able to um, kind of do preliminary surveying through that um, and we're currently working on a couple papers um, with that data. Um, there's one that was published, but um, we're, and we were hoping that we could kind of create a comparison between the US and South Korea since they are um, two kind of extreme cases of how they've managed the pandemic um, and kind of the level of impact that the pandemic has had on everyday life. Um, and yeah, so we're still working on that. But I think that kind of was part of what we were thinking of in this very comparative way, um, mm. looking at how different social contexts um, could result in different changes to everyday life. Um, and obviously in the US, like politics and all of that and sure. gender and all these things are very relevant. That's, I'm glad you pointed that out. So, I mean, just to clarify, you managed to get questions into of your own design into a study that was deployed in South Korea at a national level? Yes. And that's really great and very promising. Um, and I wonder, so that's work that's ongoing, but it'll be interesting to follow that. So much of the pandemic, I think, reporting, because so much of uh, public health response is national in scale, we we have this kind of picture of like people around the world, you know, behind their flag, um, and that's what the pandemic has meant. It's been a, a super. I've been a little distressed actually about the degree to which we focus on nationalism and national identity as the defining feature of how people are experiencing the pandemic. It seems like you want to go a little bit beyond that to try to find some commonalities, even if perhaps across those those boundaries. I, I'm curious how you how do you how you actually design something like that to, to carry off that comparison. Can you say just a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, well, we wanted to ask questions in kind of similar ways in order to um, come up with comparative data. But I mean, one tricky thing is that each there's like the GSS, like the general social survey and then KGSS, the Korean general social survey. Mm -hmm. And, um, both of these 
like national surveys then ask questions about like well-being and happiness and all of that. So we wanted to match those questions so we can sample, um, like compare it to the baseline of this national context during non-pandemic times. But then we also wanted our questions to relate to each other as best as possible so that we can kind of see um, any differences between the US and Korea. Um, and I mean, even in terms of something like well-being, um, mm -hmm. there's questions that we asked about um, feeling lonely, feeling happy, feeling um, stressed, feeling anxious. And the kind of range of how people are responding to that is quite different um, across different contexts. Like Americans tend to be more optimistic <laughs> and be saying more positive things, um, whether or not that's true that they actually are feeling that way um, is a different question <laughs> methodologically. But uh, that's one thing that we were kind of taking into consideration was um, designing the questions in a way that we could look at both of the sets of data um, almost side by side and compare. <laughs> Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Mira Choi and Hannah Tesler today about the social impact of COVID-19 in the United States, and we're hearing about some of their comparative research as well. Um, so you said that you oversampled Asian Americans in, on the North American part of this work. So let's talk about that aspect of it. And, and um, one of the early publications that you came has come out in this is titled The Anxiety of Being Asian American, Hate Crimes and Negative biases during the COVID-19 pandemic. So you found some crucial things pretty early on. Mira, let me bring you in on, on this first. What was the idea in oversampling Asian Americans? What were you trying to understand um, in their experience? And I guess maybe sort of add on to that, what were some of the preliminary assumptions that you had about why you would think the Asian American experience of the pandemic might be different from others? Yeah, so early on last year, um, when Hannah I, um, I and our co-author, Grace Cow, we wrote um, our paper, The Anxiety of Being Asian American. We were already pretty aware of how um, people are reacting to COVID um, in relation to xenophobia and um, like especially Trump administration kind of keep referring to this um, COVID as China virus. Um, we've already um, found back like a year ago that there are some um, racial incidents, um, biases and um, against Asian Americans in the United States. So we were pretty aware of this situation and we knew that this is a very serious, um, this would have serious consequences on Asian Americans um, daily lives during COVID and their well-being. Um, especially we have a lot of friends and families around in the US and um, know how they've been feeling anxious um, and worried going outside during COVID. So um, keeping that in mind, we really thought that it's important to have um, oversampling of Asian Americans to kind of, because there are not that many data sets that are nationally representative that has enough of um, Asian Americans in the respondent sample. So we wanted, we really wanted to have that um, large number of Asian Americans. And we expected that 
um, Asian Americans would, um, compared to before, they would um, report more ne um, negative racial incidents against Asian Americans during COVID. Um, yeah, so that was one of the biggest assumptions that we had, and that's what we we find as well. So we find a high rates of Asian Americans reporting um, racial incidents. So in our data set, 25% of our um, Asian American respondents reported that they experienced um, racial incidents or their um, close friend or family members experienced racial incidents. Yeah. Can you, that's a staggering figure. Uh, just first of all, just to underline that, and it's it's been in the news uh, more this year under this administration, and President Biden has been um, articulate about this. Um, but your your study came out last year. I mean, this is something you were tracking really from the from the beginning. Um, say a little bit more, if you could, uh, Hannah, coming to you about the nature of the kinds of incidents that people reported? Sure, so we, yeah, we actually published that article last summer, um, summer 2020. And then it's, I think one thing that's been particularly heartbreaking to me is that now there's a lot of national attention on this issue, um, particularly after the Atlanta mass shooting. Um, but at the same time, this has been something that's been going on for so long. Um, I mean, both during the COVID pandemic, like in March and April, there were news reports about um, people getting shouted racial slurs at, people getting um, punched. And um, there was like one incident of a attempted murder um, where a Burmese American family was stabbed in, outside of like Sam's Club, Walmart, that kind of mm -hmm. supermarket. Um, but actually, a lot of people have not been paying attention to this issue until a mass murder. Um, and so to me, I think it's quite sad that, you know, there has been so much loss of life that had to predicate this becoming, you know, a hashtag on Twitter and something that people are paying attention to because these racial incidents have been going on um, for a long time. And that's something that we talk about um, in our article and something that other organizations um, such as like Stop API Hate um, from the onset of the pandemic that they've been collecting um, self-reports of anti-Asian incidents. And actually we see that there have been like a lot, a lot, um, I think it's like over 3000 um, racial incidents against Asian Americans. And they range from like verbal assaults to physical assaults. Um, and yeah, all of that has been more in the news now, but, um, is definitely not a new phenomenon. So this article, the anxiety of, of being Asian and the, I just want to make sure I have the title correct here so people can find it and, and read it on their own. The anxiety of being Asian American hate crimes and negative biases during the COVID-19 pandemic appeared in the American Journal of Criminal Justice in June. And so you already had, um, by that time, reports, as you're uh, pointing out, of aggressions and microaggressions as well. And I, I just want to read um, one little bit from here. Um, it's a really complicated article in your findings. Um, I think we have to spend some time with these. I'm just quoting for you here. You said, hate crimes have increased the anxiety of Asian Americans during already uncertain times with many fearful for their physical safety when running everyday errands. Asian Americans are now self-conscious about quote unquote coughing while Asian. 
and concerned about being targeted for hate crimes, you go on, there's evidence to suggest that Asian Americans underreport crimes and some recent immigrants may lack an understanding of the legal system and process of reporting crimes. So there's a lot happening there. Let's take a little bit of that, um, sort of segregate that a little bit uh, about the underreporting issue. Where does where does that come from? Help us understand why Asian Americans may underreport these kinds of bias incidents, either verbal assault or physical assault. Okay. Uh, sorry, oh. I should direct it to one of you since <laughs> oh, you're no, both okay. together there. Hannah, go ahead. It's just hard to know. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of different reasons why um, these types of bias incidents and hate crimes would be underreported. Um, some of it, I think, is language barrier or um, like that a lot of Asian Americans are new immigrants to the U.S. and um, may not necessarily totally like see what is happening against them as racism and as xenophobia. Um, and I think that could come from a place of optimism of not wanting to see racism and xenophobia in a place where they are just arriving to. Um, but I think on top of that, there is a lot. And one thing that we talk about in our article more at length is um, around the way that Asian Americans have been seen throughout history as, you know, always foreign and always um, as an outsider, even if they have been in the U.S. for a long time. Um, and so at the same time, Asian Americans, particularly compared to other racial minority groups, um, have, or some Asian Americans have achieved more quote unquote success, um, in terms of levels of education and income and these other kind of measures. Um, and a lot of that foreignness, but success, um, has been around, um, what in sociology we call like the model minority stereotype, um, and a lot of the kind of social and cultural norms around um, trading in your complicity and silence and kind of absorbing different like racial incidents and um, negative <laughs> slurs or these kinds of things as something that is par for the course and something that is not that big of a deal, quote unquote. Um, and I think that especially um, there has been a lot of almost gaslighting around Asian mm. Americans experiences of violence um, and of racial violence to the extent where before COVID um, it wasn't necessarily dangerous for me, for example, to go out to the grocery store. I wouldn't be worried about being shot by the cops or <laughs> being otherwise physically assaulted I mean, besides like being a woman and being vulnerable in that way, um, right. I think in terms of being Asian American, um, there weren't these kind of physical threats of violence um, before COVID. And which, but that's not to say that these kind of sentiments of seeing Asian Americans as foreigners and outsiders didn't exist. Um, and so I think the way that that's manifested has been now is very legible to people as violence. Um, but has not always been. And because of that, um, I think a lot of people would choose to, you know, look the other way or um, minimize the violence and say, oh, well, it's really not that big of a deal, particularly if saying that it's not a big deal will help give you more access to 
privileged power mm. elite spaces that other racial minorities, if they are quote unquote, like acting too angry or making a fuss, um, wouldn't be able to have. So I think it's complicated. The history. It is complicated. And Mira, I want to bring you in on this as well, but just to underline a couple of things that Hannah said there, which I think are really profound. One is that um, recently arrived immigrants may not want to uh, believe or may not want to to see. I hadn't really thought of this before, but if they're arriving, their arrival indicates a certain optimism about a new life. I don't want to oversell that because those lives are hard, but at the same time, um, some unwillingness to believe that those kinds of things could happen to them. And then you have this model minority stereotype, which is also working, which seems like it might push the other way that um, these kinds of attacks when reported might not be believed. And so that makes a really difficult combination of factors to try to understand um, also that this is not coming from nowhere, that this is a set of social conditions that pre-exists the pandemic, but then somehow the pandemic crystallizes them into a social effect that you can really begin to measure. Mira, to comment on anything I just said or correct me on any of the uh, assumptions I'm working with there or anything else you want to add to it? Um, well, um, I'm a recent immigrant in the US. Um, so as a personal, like with my personal experience, um, I, I really think that the pandemic has shed light on the racial, um, how the racial biases against Asians can be um, my own experience. Um, before that, like, um, even though before that, like coming to the US um, for the first time, like I was expecting a lot of um, difference from what I've been experiencing in South Korea um, and have like optimism in terms of uh, my career and everything. But then um, pandemic happened in six months and um, it kind of really made me realize the status of Asians in the US and how um, Asian Americans are always seen as perpetual foreigners. So yeah, with my personal experience, I can also like, I agree with all you've um, just, you're working on, yeah. Oh, just let me ask one follow-up question, um, this idea of the perpetual foreigner. And so it goes back to a deep history in the United States of, uh, and we don't have to go through all of them, but I mean, you know, Japanese internment during World War II or specific legislative acts that restricted um, Chinese immigration into the United States and in, into the 19th century. We don't have to look far to find really structural, like legal um, moments uh, moments in, in law in the United States in which these structures of bias are there. Um, but I guess I'm curious to hear a little bit more. Hannah, let me ask, let me ask you this first. Um, how that does persist? I mean, what are some of the social factors that you look at for the persistence of this idea of a sort of perpetual outsider, Asian Americans somehow always being othered in American society? So your question is, um, like, why do you think it persists? Or... Why does it? Yeah, exactly. Um, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, I mean, I think the way that Asian Americans, for example, have been positioned vis-a-vis -vis race is very different from the immigration history of other Americans. Um, and 
for example, like Irish Americans or Italian Americans or um, Jewish Americans historically have been racialized and seen as foreign, um, but that that has not always persisted. Um, and now they kind of have been subsumed into the category of white. And there is a question, an open-ended question of, you know, are Asians the new whites or are Asians superior to whites or um, that kind of thing. But at the same time, Asianness has always been treated as separate. And so even when Asian Americans, and I, I know that um, like in, 1960, maybe 64, 65, there was a New York Times article that first coined the idea of the mama minority through looking at um, Japanese Americans as a success story, quote unquote, um, and how that Asian Americans are the minority that made it um, and that are able to achieve the American dream, so to speak, in terms of education and homeownership and all these things. Um, and I think that the, that positioning of Asian Americans as foreign is not accidental. That is, that Asian Americans continue to be treated as foreign and continue to be treated as not fully American or um, not, can't just be American because it serves as a tool to then distinguish and separate Asian Americans from other racial minorities, such as Black Americans, Latinx communities, and um, put them as a kind of wedge um, as, and a counterexample of, oh, look, you know, these are racial minorities and they could be successful or they could be assimilated into America. Um, and if only you work harder and follow the rules and act like Asian Americans do, then you can also have this. But that that still comes at the price of Asian Americans being foreign and not fully American, that you would never right. be American without that label. Yeah. Thank you for taking that on for, I think you're giving a, a really some nice insights there because it is complicated and longstanding sort of problem. Another thing I've seen in, in the press um, is some critique or concern about the, this terminology. And I wonder how you struggle with that as well. Asians, Amer Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, for example, I mean, that encompasses a vast range of people from a huge part of the world. So, I mean, even that question of, you know, how do we determine um, Asian American identity? And I guess you, to make it even more difficult, you're asking people that you're surveying to engage with that or not engage with that. Um, that strikes me as a, as a difficult methodological problem as well. I mean, I, I guess sort of any thoughts about that, you know, what are the difficulties of trying to um, understand the experience of Asian Americans uh, broadly speaking, or is that just the category that um, has held up very well for you in, in the research? Mira, can you speak to that? Yeah, so we had a very um, hard time kind of finalizing um, how we're going to ask a question about their um, identification of race and ethnicity, mm -hmm. because that itself is a really complicated issue. People don't have a straightforward, um, I, like one single identity of their race or ethnicity. So it was really, um, we had to go through a lot of other um, surveys that previously asked questions about race and ethnicity to find um, how people ask these questions. So we kind of tried to incorporate as much uh, variety as possible and kind of 
um, ask questions in a way where people can choose multiple um, race or multiple ethnicity so that we can kind of cross check and see um, people could identify themselves as um, the, um, Asian, but people can identify themselves as American, but could be Asian um, in their ethnicity. So that's how we kind of um, went about to um, in, have like deal with this complicated issue of identification with race. It seems, seems to me that one of the real implications of this work is, is not only for people living in, in the United States, but also other parts of the world. And I'll just share with you that after the Atlanta shootings um, here at KAIST in Dijon, uh, we brought together a group of, of graduate students and faculty uh, because Koreans are part of a diaspora and many South Koreans will also spend some time in, in Europe or in the United States studying or visiting family, they've extended family networks, business networks, whatever it may be. And it was, um, to me, it was a really illuminating conversation to hear my colleagues and friends and students here talking about their own um, concerns about what's happening in America. And I know you've been doing sort of comparative work. I don't know if your work um, yields any insights on that, but you know, I think a lot of times Americans think whatever happens in America only involves Americans. And so it's an internal problem. I think on this issue, it's a global problem, certainly. And the students and my friends here really knew a lot about what was happening, about the kinds of findings that you're pointing to in America. I wonder, in your discussions with Korean colleagues here where I am, um, what those discussions have been like in terms of the implications of anti-Asian bias in America for Asians in other part of the other parts of the world, I don't know if either maybe Mira can ask you that first. Yeah. So um, in our um, survey study, we didn't ask about this in anti-Asian hate crime in the Korean survey, but um, I've been talking a lot with the Korean um, team and some of my friends in Korea. And um, anti-Asian hate, it's not something that's only happening in the United States. Um, a lot of my friends. Um, and colleagues have traveled to Europe and other um, Western countries, quote unquote, um, and they have experienced, especially Asian women, um, have experienced racial slurs, like um, when someone's walking, when we're walking by, someone would like meow at you as if you're a cat, or like they would um, like sexually assault um, Asian women so easily. So this kind of um, anti-Asian hate crime um, and slurs. Um, it's not really a novel thing that's just happening during the pandemic. It has been um, our daily experience when we're out um, traveling abroad or going to some other um, Western context. So people were really sympathetic about it and um, worried about their friends and families living in the U.S. and kind of um, this brought like a broader sense of solidarity among Asian communities where um, people really take um, into consideration how Asian um, race and ethnicity is contextualized in the global context. Let me ask you a, a question, additional question about the impact of research like this. Uh, and this is a question I ask myself all the time. So I'm not, I, I really want to know, you know, sort of your own, so you can illuminate me about this. What, what kind of results should 
you expect or could you expect from these kinds of findings? I mean, what you're pointing to um, and really documenting in a thorough way um, are just really distressing features in American life that have pre-exist the pandemic and then have been made worse in the pandemic. Who needs to read this research, Hannah? What kinds of impacts or changes could you expect to flow from this kind of, this kind of social science? I think one thing is just that these findings could be disseminated more broadly and could be integrated into, you know, public school curriculum. Um, and particularly if I think back um, to my experience, I mean, I grew up in the U.S. and went to public school through my entire um, high, through high school career. And we never really learned about Asian American history or even Asian history in Asia. Um, we were required to take US history, but you know, learning about Asian history or Asian American history or even having Asian Americans be part of US history courses was not something that was taught. And so all of the things that I've learned about um, from you know Japanese internment <laughs> to Vincent Chin and to the history of the Chinese Exclusion Act and all of this is um, material that I've learned since high school and since growing up. Um, and I think that in the U.S. we do a really bad job of actually teaching people about the history of Asians in America. Um, and so that's one area that I think um, could be really useful in terms of disseminating this research and um, helping people understand and learn more about the context. Because um, even if you compare it to like history of other um, immigrant groups, I feel like I learned more about, you know, the Irish famine and the potato farmers sure. and their plight of coming to the U.S. Um, in the 1800s and all of that. Like, I feel like that's sticks more in my brain as something that I learned about in school than Asian Americans and like how Asian Americans were building the railroads and were uh, migrant labor and were coolie labor. Like, I didn't know about the term coolie um, mm -hmm. until college or whatever. And so I think those are all things that people shouldn't have to learn about on their own. Like you shouldn't have to seek out that information uh, because you're interested in this issue. Um, I think education is one really um, obvious sure. and also really effective way um, that people could learn more about this. So pointing to those profound gaps in education so that people don't have to be surprised um, and pushing back on this model minority stereotype that you were talking about earlier. Um, I wonder also about this underreporting issue. So that's that's what maybe everyone can do and what educators can do and school districts can do. But to bring it back to um, people who are suffering this violence themselves, can or how can research like this go some distance, do you think, to intervene a little bit in that space? Because clearly we need more support and a different kind of environment for Asian Americans to feel like they can report um, bias incidents. Mira, I, I wonder how this kind of work do you think can influence that possibility? Yeah, so I think um, people getting to know more about this anti-Asian um, um, hate crime tend to um, realize um, that the things that are happening around them is anti-Asian hate crime. So in our data, we find that people who are more um, reading more news and be um, spend more time on social media are more aware of the anti-Asian anti-Asian um, 
hate crime and they tend to participate more in social justice um, movements related to racism. Um, So that clearly shows that being more exposed to these kinds of incidents and being aware of what um, consists of anti-Asian hate crime um, really helps people to um, realize that the things that are happening are anti-Asian hate crime and um, that could also lead to um, broader implications of participating in the social justice movement, um, learning more about it or donating money or volunteering to help social organizations that um, kind of um, are organized to um, eliminate um, racism in the U.S. So, yeah. Well, thank you both. I mean, those are really concrete answers. And I think, I mean, to me, the social science is worthy to do in and of itself because it's important to document and explain these phenomena as they're happening. But I think we all want to see the kind of work that you're doing really get uptake in the policy process. But policy is not just what happens in Congress, as you point out. It also can be what happens uh, at social justice level, at the activist level, um, in the classroom. And those are really important um, important ways to see how your your work will have impact. We're almost up on time today with Hannah Tesler and Mira Choi on COVID calls. Um, really lively discussion, and I want to talk about if we can, if you can spare me another couple of minutes about another paper that you published about arts and crafts as an educational strategy and coping mechanism. So this is another. Um, Trans-Pacific comparative study that you've done in the midst of the of the pandemic. Talk to us a little bit about this. It's a, I suppose it's not unrelated to the previous work, but um, quite different in its uh, in its orientation. Maybe um, Mira, can I start with you about this? Yeah. So we were um, really interested in um, learning more about how people, uh, how parents with children are coping with um, the current COVID pandemic. Um, since they're mostly um, guided to work from home and they have the burden, double the burden of working and taking care of their children during COVID, um, during the COVID pandemic. So we looked into some of the consumer reports and um, looked into data sets in um, online parents' communities and kind of found out that parents are paying attention to arts and crafts as their um, coping mechanism during COVID-19, um, showing virtual um, virtual concerts or virtual museum tour is something that came up during COVID-19. But we also found that these kinds of arts and crafts or um, virtual um, art experiences can be limited to um, upper class parents who have the cultural capital to um, point out point to these kinds of um, creative activities during COVID where children um, have a lot of time spending at, spending um, at home um, with less resources, educational resources. So that was, yeah, one. That's fascinating. Hannah, did this come from the first study? I mean, is this something that uh, in the questions you were asking, some you got some indicator that this was also, um, you know, unique set of challenges that parents were facing, and so you you built the second study, or is this somehow separate? Um, I mean, I 
it's hard to remember now, but um, I guess <laughs> I'll ask you to reconstruct different. Yeah, we've looked at a lot of different um, impacts of COVID on mm-hmm. both parents and education and like social relationships and all of these kind of different areas where COVID has caused this disruption in how people's everyday lives are um, kind of being enacted. Um, and so, yeah, I think we we kind of conceived of, and a part of this was just paying a lot of attention to the news and to what's going on and to um, tying back to our own research interests in like gender and parenting and education, um, that these are things that both of us in our own research agenda and outside of COVID um, have looked into in the past and have done work on. So um, I think in some ways it's separate from the anti-Asian hate research, but it's all under the kind of umbrella of these different ways that COVID has impacted um, people's lives and looking beyond just look beyond just COVID as um, a disease and as a pandemic, but also at these other dimensions of how COVID could be perpetuating existing inequalities or right. um, exacerbating inequalities and kind of revealing a lot of the discrimination or just general inequities in the way that um, our social system works. Worldwide. One of the things that one of the things that certainly revealed in the United States was the um, often uncounted and invisible labor of childcare. Um, and all of a sudden it made a lot of that very visible because uh, children were at home and fathers were at home uh, and the news media was paying attention to this sort of um, you know, new space that had been created, which is the nuclear family together at home all the time. Um, and the house becomes uh, the classroom as well. I wonder, let me just ask a little bit of a follow-up about the South Korean case. What has been the experience, and it seems like this paper must have touched on that a little bit, um, of parents in South Korea and the schools there, here, I'm here. So anyway, well, <laughs> um, but can you say a little bit about that and how that compares to the experience in the United States? Yeah, definitely one um, large one big difference between the U.S. and Korea is that um, in Korea, um, the burden of childcare is um, predominantly the women's uh, on women, um, and um, I think in Korea, compared to the U.S., there has been less um, kind of changes towards working from home and remote commuting. So I think a lot of the Korean um, employees were still going to the companies to go um, to work. So most of the fathers who are um, the breadwinners in um, South Korea have been still going um, in person to work and mothers were uh, mostly spending time at home taking care of their children. So what we find in our paper is that um, mothers have been um, posting a lot of um, ideas about arts and crafts and how they can spend time with their children, um, provide educational motivations and um, kind of resources to their children. So that kind of gender difference is um, much stark in South Korea compared to the US. I see. Well, thank you for that. We're we're almost up on time now. I just want to give both of my guests a chance if they wanted to say a, a little bit about future 
work or work that's ongoing, maybe you can give us just a little bit of some headlines, things we can look for coming out of your research group. Uh, I know you're working there, uh, Mira Choi, Hannah Tesler, and also with Grace Cow there at, at Yale. Um, Mira, to you, anything you want to tell us about some of this work that you're really excited about coming up? Yeah, so we're working on several um, manuscripts uh, based on our data set. And um, one of the work is on um, how during COVID, um, worrying about um, your family members or even broader community has become a, a sort of care work during COVID and how that is disproportionately affecting women's well-being during COVID. And we have another paper um, on social relationships and how people um, dating, how people's attitudes toward dating has changed during COVID. Um, so we have several manuscripts coming up, but also we are um, expecting to collect second wave of data um, this fall, kind of to see how the long-term um, effect of COVID, whether it, there is a long-term effect of COVID on all multiple aspects of social lives. Anna, let me give you the last word. It sounds like we're going to have to have you back later in the year to get an update about what that second um, harvesting of data looks like. Hannah, last word to you on this. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, Mira summarized it up pretty well that we have a couple other papers in progress and also that, you know, we're still very much in the midst of our data collection and data analysis. One thing from our survey that we have not fully analyzed yet is that we did ask open response questions about hmm. um, positive and negative changes to your life over the past few months um, from when we asked our survey, which is all during COVID. Um, and so not everybody filled in a response. Um, and we're still in the process of coding those responses into different subcategories. Um, and we're hoping to create kind of a data set around that and then linking that to the other socio-demographic factors um, because a lot of people brought up topics that we wouldn't necessarily have known about from um, just our survey questions alone. Um, and so that's one other future avenue where, again, we're still in the middle of um, doing that data co collection and data analysis. And um, it's really interesting because there are so many things that get seen differently by people in the US. So for example, mask wearing, for some people, it's a positive consequence um, and people feel safer and people feel, you know, it's healthier and it's um, more responsible to the people around you. Whereas other people are complaining about mask wearing and saying that it restricts their freedom and um, think that, you know, America is like turning into a fascist state um, and all that. So the open responses, we're really looking forward to yeah. Um, kind of delving more into that data analysis. Um, but of course, because it's an open response question that it is more complicated to um, kind of parse through those results. So that's another longer term project that we're working on too. You've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. And this week we'll also have a, a Friday episode um, with guests here where I am in South Korea at a special time. So please look for that announcement. And I want to thank my guests, Hannah Tesler and Mira Choi, for spending this time today talking about their really fascinating research. And best of luck to you as you go forward with it. Thanks for sharing this time today. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 530.